Welcome back to Talking PFAS podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I know it's been a long time since I published an episode. I've been busy launching a second podcast that is not about PFAS. It's good to be back. My guest today is Professor Ian Cousins from the Department of Environmental Science at Stockholm University in Sweden. Now, I've interviewed Ian before in episode 21 when we spoke about his PFAS essential use paper. And I highly recommend a listen to that one. Professor Cousin has a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the University of York and a PhD in Environmental Science from Lancaster University. He's well known for his research on the sources, transport and fate and exposure pathways of PFAS. In recent years, Professor Cousins has written a series of policy-related articles driven by his concern about the continued use of PFAS. Today, we're going to be discussing his recent perspective paper that he's written with his colleagues and he will give you the name of that. Ian and colleagues in their conclusion state, we conclude that PFAS define a new planetary boundary that has been exceeded based on PFAS levels in environmental media being ubiquitously above guideline levels. Irrespective of whether or not one agrees with our conclusion that the planetary boundary for PFAS is exceeded, It is nevertheless highly problematic that everywhere on Earth where humans reside, recently proposed health advisories cannot be achieved without large investment in advanced cleanup technology. Uh, I'll be heading to Adelaide in a couple of days for the Cleanup Conference 2022, where I hope to talk to a range of experts in Australia and around the world about some of those advanced cleanup technologies that might exist now or be emerging. So stay tuned for that one. The US EPA has made some significant announcements regarding PFAS in the last couple of months. And in today's episode, I'll provide details of these. Now to today's chat with Professor Ian Cousins. Hi, Ian. Welcome to Talking PFAS podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And you've been a guest on the podcast before in episode 21, all the way back in November 2020, when we discussed your PFAS and essential use paper. That's correct. That's a good one for people to listen to if they don't know a lot about PFAS and the properties of PFAS. So today we're going to be discussing your latest paper published on the 2nd of August 2022 in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal. Can you just tell the listeners the name of that article and also the team that you worked with? Yeah, the name of the article is Outside the Safe Operating Space of a New Planetary Boundary for Per- and Polyfluoroalkyl Substances, or PFAS. I led the work, so I was the first author, but then we also included some members from my research team who were doing quite a lot of work on atmospheric transport of PFAS. So that includes a former PhD student of mine called Jani Johansson. It also includes a colleague of mine who's a researcher called Matthew Salter. It also includes another former PhD student who's now working for me as a postdoctoral researcher, Bo Shah. And then we had collaboration uh, with, some, with another scientist who I've collaborated with for many years from ETH in Zurich in Switzerland. And his name is Martin Scheringer. How long did this paper take to put together? 
The paper was quite quick to write because it doesn't include um, new measurements. It is really just some observations that we have. We've made some of the measurements ourselves um, over the years, but the first draft only took me a few days to put together. And then, of course, we have to spend probably a few weeks modifying the draft. So it was a relatively fast paper to write. Why did you and your team, or you as the lead author, want to write this paper? Well, I've been noticing for a while that because of our, not, our knowledge of toxicity of the substances, PFAS has increased, that what's considered to be the safe levels in environmental media have dropped to the point where I was starting to see that they were coming down to levels which were the same or below even background environmental levels. And I thought, well, how are we going to be able to achieve these guidelines or health advisories you know, if they're so close to what the background level is of PFAS in the globe, this is going to be a really big concern because we're not going to be able to achieve these. these comments. And um, it's also going to be a concern to the public that they're exposed above a health advisory. So they may be concerned that, you know, am I going to have an effect then? Because, you know, my drinking water may be above the health advisory. And it may not be possible to get it down below the health advisory because of the background environmental contamination. I've been noticing this for a while and I thought it was time to make this point and gather information to make this point very clearly. So we gathered information in of PFAS levels in rainwater from around the globe, but also we looked at soil and we looked at surface waters. And we made a comparison between levels in the environment and these guidelines. The result was pretty much as I thought. We have ambient environmental levels are very close to these guideline levels. And in some cases, and for some substances, the environmental levels are above the guideline levels at all places around the world. For example, in the rainwater, the PFOA, the concentrations in the rainwater everywhere, is above the health advisory that was recently set by the US EPA. They also state in their paper that the PFAS drinking water guidelines have progressively decreased over the last 22 years. For example, in the US, the PFOA drinking water guideline for West Virginia was 150,000 nanograms a litre, which is higher by a factor of 37.5 million than the recently announced US EPA Drinking Water Lifetime Advisory for PFOA, which is now four picograms a litre. And Ian states in his paper, as a result of this decrease, international drinking water guidelines for PFAS are now close to or even lower than levels in precipitation. This is from the EPA press office. On June 15, 2022, the US EPA released four drinking water health advisories for PFAS in the latest action under President Biden's action plan to deliver clean water and Administrator Reagan's PFAS strategic roadmap. EPA is issuing interim updated drinking water health advisories for PFOA and PFOS that replace those EPA issued in 2016. The updated advisory levels, which are based on new science and consider lifetime exposure, indicate that some negative health effects may occur with concentrations of PFOA or PFOS in water that are near zero and below EPA's ability to detect at this time. The lower the level of PFOA and PFOS, the lower the risk to public health. When you look at the paper that we're discussing today and you look at the graphs, the levels of PFOA in rainwater greatly exceed the US EPA drinking water health advisory for PFOA 
even in remote areas, the lowest value for PFOA is the Tibetan Plateau with a medium of 55 picograms per litre, which is approximately 14 times higher than the new advisory. So when you're talking about PFAS in background levels, just so people understand, you're talking about PFAS in rainwater, in soil, in biosolids. That's the background levels you're talking about? Yeah, just like if you were to go out into your garden or something and take some soil or or you have the ability to take a rainwater sample, it's not that difficult. You just need a funnel and a bottle, basically. You could just go out into the environment around you and just take some samples and just measure the PFAS in those samples. There isn't really a background for PFAS because they shouldn't be there at all. They know they're man-made substances, but there is an ambient level that's pretty much everywhere around the globe because they've been spread globally. So that's really what you'd be measuring away from any obvious point source. So the average person in their garden would probably find PFAS? Yeah, you would find PFAS everywhere. Wherever you go on the planet, whatever media you look in, you will find PFAS. That's one of the big problems with them because they're so persistent and mobile. If you use them for a long time, they will spread everywhere on the planet. And that's what's happened. And now we're seeing also the recycling through the environment from landfill leachate, as we've talked about, and rainwater now. And your paper goes into ocean spray, I think. Correct. Yeah. They do cycle around on by various processes. The sea spray aerosol is something that we're doing a lot of research on. What happens in the oceans is that when you have waves, it makes bubbles. And these bubbles get very strongly enriched with some of these PFAS because their PFAS are like detergents. They have a like a, a long water-hating tail and a water-loving head, just like mm-hmm. the detergent you use in your when you wash up. And this means that they go to the interfaces. They go to the, the air-water interface on the bubbles and they get very, very enriched. And then when these bubbles burst at the surface of the ocean, they eject little droplets or aerosols into the air. And these little droplets are very small and they can travel a long way in the atmosphere and they're very enriched, very high concentrations of PFAS. So this is a new mechanism for transporting these PFAS in the atmosphere around the globe. You've got measurements for that? Yeah, we're leading the research, I would say, globally on this particular area. And we've made a lot of measurements and we show that in the aerosols, these droplets that get ejected, The concentrations are 60,000 times higher than the concentrations in this underlying sea. So there's a very strong enrichment process going on. That's quite amazing numbers. Yeah. I haven't read any papers on this, but you've done some. Yeah, we've done some papers and we've tried to publicize this work as well. We call it the toxic boomerang. That's the way we try to get publicize it. You know, the old idea was that these PFAS will ultimately go into the sea and stay in the sea and mix down into the deep oceans but what we Mm. show is that's not the case they boomerang back to the shore again get deposited again on land and then maybe they go back into the ocean again continue a cycle from the land to the sea and then from the sea back to the land again they will accumulate on the surface and they will accumulate on these bubbles because you have this air water interface and that's where these surface active substances go to so when you see after rough seas and you've got all that foam that's just maybe in your ocean baths, in the pools, up on the shoreline. Is that always PFAS? Those foams are naturally produced as well. So there are natural surfactants as well. But those foams are going to also be highly enriched with PFAS because they're, it, those foams are basically little bubbles and those bubbles become very enriched. It's another interface where these PFAS go to. 
you can get high concentrations on those phones. Wow, okay. It's a very complex contaminant, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. It's an extremely complicated contaminant. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, from a scientific point of view, they're fascinating to study, but it also means that we weren't ready, really, for their behaviour as scientists because they behave in different ways than the the pollutants that we used to study. You've been doing PFAS work for 20 years and you're still learning new things, right? Yeah, and yeah, everyone is. They're fascinating from a scientific point of view. I noticed that you tweeted that your paper has had a lot of attention. In fact, you said, just discovered that our perspective on PFAS in rainwater is the number one most read paper in environmental science and technology in the last 12 months with 150,000 reads and it's only been 12 days. So that response has surprised you? Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal response. We get usually some journalists interested and they interview us and they write a few articles. But in this case, it's phenomenal because that's kind of like a blockbuster no other papers in the whole journal have been read as much in the last 12 months as this paper was read in 12 days. You said one download every six seconds. Yeah, that's right. Maybe it was higher at the peak, but that was just on average for the first 12 days. So yeah, it was phenomenal. And then we got so many media requests. And I don't normally go on live TV all over the world to talk about my research. And that's happened on the radio as well all over the world. So it's there's been an enormous response and we weren't really prepared for that. So why do you think it's been such a incredible response? I think the idea of PFAS in rainwater seems to have caught people's imagination most. And I think it's like rainwater is considered kind of a giver of life in some respects. I think everyone relates to it. I mean I didn't realise also how many people around the world drink rainwater directly without much treatment or any treatment. And so there's vast numbers of people around the world doing this. Even in Australia, it's not uncommon for people to drink rainwater. Uh, we knew this was happening. We didn't know the extent to which it was happening. So that was also something that helped with getting a lot of attention. I mean, in Sweden, we drink water from mountain springs and we think it's the best water you know that you can drink. Of course, that's fed by rainwater. So it's caught yes. uh, everyone's imagination that the environment is like contaminated now to the point where the rainwater everywhere would be above a health advisory. Well, even rural properties in Australia, many, many people have tank water. And even in these PFAS contaminated areas that I've covered in Australia, many of them were put onto tank water. And this is near the contaminated RAF bases. So from what you're saying, if it's in the rain, I wonder how concerned those people should now be that it could be in their tank water and what can they do about it? Because they might not have an alternate source of water. Yeah, I mean, the, the tank water is going to be a lot lower than the, the groundwater that they would have drunk if they hadn't switched from the groundwater to the tank water. So they definitely reduced their exposure a lot by switching to that. So they would have still been exposed to PFAS, but those people shouldn't be any more concerned than anyone, everyone else because everyone is exposed to PFAS from rainwater and from the treated drinking water that you get to your tap. You will have in that water, you'll have these low levels of PFAS because they're not effectively removed from treatment processes either. So I don't think those people should be especially worried at all. But, you know, we should be concerned more generally, globally, about the fact that there are low levels of PFAS everywhere around us, including in the drinking water. So it's pretty much probably why if you tested a group of people 
any humans, they would have PFAS in their blood. Yeah, and we can also say that for these poor PFAS, the levels in our blood were higher in the past. So that if we were to measure people's blood um, around the turn of the century, we have done, and their levels were much higher than they are now. So there has been a reduction in the exposure to PFAS. But I don't think that reduction in exposure will continue forever, because I think what will happen is eventually... When we remove all of the important PFAS-containing consumer products um, that have exposed us in the past, especially things like food contact papers and years like food packaging, fast foods and things like that, we remove all of these important exposure sources, then the only exposure sources left are from the environment around us. And so those exposures will eventually become the dominant exposures. And then those exposures are not going to go down very much anymore. So although we've seen a drop in exposure over the last 20 years, I don't think that will continue forever. It will start to level off and the background sort of exposure will become the dominant exposure. Well, that's very concerning, isn't it? Especially when we're talking about a complex group of chemicals. And there are thousands and thousands now that EPA have, uh, last count, there was about 9,000 different types of PFAS chemicals. Now, not all of them are toxic, but many of them Thousands of them have not been studied, right? No, I mean, they're all persistent. And, you know, this concerns us that when they're released into the environment, they will not degrade. And that concerns us because we know that as we learn more about substances and we learn more about their effects, not necessarily just toxic effects, but also other effects like ozone depletion, climate change, some of these chlorinated gases have high global warming potential. So they can have all sorts of different effects on the environment. And, you know, it takes research to discover these effects. But, you know, once you've got a persistent chemical out there, you can't easily reverse that environmental contamination. I mean, you've got many of these substances. Are we really going to study them one by one, trying to determine what are the effects that could potentially happen? We've already seen that for these four PFAS, that our knowledge increased so much over the last 20 years that the safe levels keep dropping. So, this is a concern or maybe a precautionary approach would be preferable. Definitely. Actually, Ian, in episode 27 of Talking PFAS, I spoke to an award-winning investigative reporter in Michigan and the Great Lakes region. His name was Garrett Allison and uh, he wrote an article in June 21 with a headline, It's Literally Raining PFAS. And he was referring to a study by the Integrated Atmospheric Deposition Network, and they identified that rainwater collected in Cleveland over a period of two weeks in April 2021 contained a concentration of PFAS of a thousand parts per trillion. Were you aware of that study by any chance? Did you look into that study? Uh, I had some contact with some of these researchers. So, I mean, obviously we we look for data on PFAS in rain because we're doing similar research ourselves. So I, I was aware of those, those monitoring studies. And what did you think of those numbers? I mean, a thousand parts per trillion in rain. It's not surprising. We've seen similar things in our own research. And it's also like when you sample rain, usually the very first part of a rain event is when the concentrations are highest. You can imagine the rain is cleaning the air. So if you take a sample very early in a rain event, we usually have a much higher concentration than you have later in a rain event because you've kind of washed out most of, you know, washed the air already. So when you have a long rain event, it becomes more dilute okay. with time. So yeah, you can get quite high concentrations, especially if you, you sample 
water for a short intense shower would, after a long dry period would give you a higher concentration so there's quite a lot of complications in, in this and also it can depend where the air has traveled so if the air has come from an area that's contaminated then you can also get higher concentration if you're living near industrial areas would your PFAS in rain be higher than yeah you know, if, yeah and that's what we see in, in our paper where we took a one study from China where they had sampled near a fluoropolymer manufacturing plant. Now, fluoropolymers are like PTFE, you know, sometimes known by its train name Teflon. They're still making that in China with PFOA. So if you go near a, one of their factories and, and sample the air, you get very high concentrations of PFOA. And you also get, if you sample rainwater, you get very high concentrations of PFOA in the rainwater. Wow. It's concerning. And you can't really clean up the rain. Uh, no. You can't. You can clean up your rainwater tanks. You know, if you're collecting rainwater and drinking it, you could apply some technology in your home to clean up the rainwater. But whether you'd be able to clean it up to the low levels that are now in the advisories is questionable. Absolutely. Now, I want to discuss another piece of media that was in reference to your paper. And this was USA Today. They published an article on the 13th of August, so just six days ago. And this is the title of their article. Rainwater is now unsafe to drink worldwide because of forever chemicals. Were you aware of that article and what are your thoughts on that? Is it adequate? I have seen that one. I mean, that's a strong message and it's not totally incorrect. I think whether it's safe or not is questionable because we don't Mm -hmm. really know. The health advisors have been set using precautionary approaches, you know, usually set health advisory because you want to be sure that people are exposed at that level will not have any effect so if you're above that health advisory it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see effect but you then enter that area of uncertainty where you don't know whether effect will occur so it is concerning because you are above the advisory level and these advisory levels are extremely low if you take the case of the pfoa in rainwater yeah rainwater everywhere is above that advisory level we did some things in our paper where we showed that drinking water in many countries is also um, going to be above those advisory levels. In June 2022, EPA released interim updated health advisories for PFOA and PFOS based on human epidemiology studies in populations exposed to these chemicals. Based on the new data and EPA's draft analyses, the levels at which negative health effects could occur are much lower than previously understood when EPA issued the 2016 health advisories for PFOA and PFOS at 70 parts per trillion. Now, a proposed rule by US EPA was published in the Federal Register on the 6th of September this year. It states in this document, EPA is proposing to designate PFOA and PFOS as hazardous substances because evidence indicates that these chemicals may present substantial danger to public health or welfare or the environment when released into the environment. They state PFOA and PFOS are persistent and mobile in the environment and exposure can lead to adverse human health effects, including high cholesterol, changes in liver enzymes, decreased immune response to vaccination, thyroid disorders, pregnancy-induced hypertension and preeclampsia, and cancer, testicular and kidney for PFOA, and liver and thyroid cancer for PFOS. They further state, the adverse human health effects, mobility, persistence, 
prevalence and other factors related to these PFAS combined to support EPA's proposed finding that PFOA and PFOS when released into the environment may present substantial danger to the public health or welfare or the environment and as a result warrant designation as circular hazardous substances. The US EPA include a huge list of potentially affected US industrial entities, including, but not limited to, aviation, carpet manufacturers, car washes, landfills, medical devices, paper mills, pesticides and insecticides, textile mills, photographic film manufacturers, wastewater treatment plants. Comments about this proposed rule must be received on or before November 7. Did you feel like that headline was a little bit alarmist? I've seen worse. The worst ones I've seen are like rainwater causes cancer. So I've seen quite a few articles like that. Those worry me because some of these PFAS have been associated with different kinds of cancer, but at much higher exposure levels than we're discussing in this paper. Yes, you're not making that claim. We're not making paper. that claim at all in the paper. We're, we're also saying the health effect, which has driven these advisories so low, is, you know, this uh, work from a Danish researcher, Luc Ranjong, which has shown that exposure to quite low levels of PFAS can make certain vaccines less effective, threatening children. That's right. So there are lots of other effects, but these are not the effects that have been used to formulate these advisories. And I can understand why they make these connections, because they're not scientists, but they know that PFAS cause cancer at very high exposure levels. They know that PFAS in the rainwater is above these health advisories, so they then draw a line between that and just say, okay, so rainwater causes cancer, but that's not correct. So that's where we try now to try and correct some of these misinterpretations as best we can by having some good journalists talk to us. And you also have created a frequently asked questions document that you will be putting on your website. Is that correct? Yeah, hopefully today. If not, very soon. It'll be on the website of Stockholm University and I will tweet a link to it. I'll also put a link on LinkedIn. I'll try and disseminate it as, as wide as possible. And every time a journalist contacts me from now on, I will send them. I am already sending them a draft copy mm. of that so that they get the correct facts. And I will also listen to scientists around the world who, if they think there's anything incorrect in that document, yeah, and they can convince me that it's incorrect, then I will even edit that document and change it. Excellent. So as far as the misinterpretations in the news and the social media that you are seeing, what is your main message to people that are maybe creating hysteria? Yeah, please get the facts correct. Get the facts straight. Please talk to me or look at our frequently asked question sheet, please don't spread this misinformation because it does cause us problems. We want to be accurate in our communication. Yes, we are concerned about this spread of PFAS around the globe, and we wanted to raise that concern, but we don't want to spread incorrect information to everyone. What are the main messages of your paper that you want the public to understand? The main message of our paper was that because we've been using these persistent chemicals for a long time, they've been spread everywhere around the globe. And as we have got a better understanding of the toxicity, we now realize that it's not possible to achieve the health advisories that are now being set. So the message we want to get across is this. It's a bad idea 
to use these very persistent chemicals. And we have to be careful about the larger group of PFAS. You know, we should also be concerned that similar things may happen uh, if we continue to use these other PFAS. And we've been making this point about the problem of persistent chemicals in other papers. We're going to tackle this planetary boundary terminology. And I did find another team of researchers at Stockholm, I believe. Correct. They also published in the Environmental Science and Technology in January this year. And theirs says outside the safe operating space of the planet planetary boundary for novel entities and yours is outside the safe operating space of a new planetary boundary for PFAS. You reference their paper in your paper. Were you guided by their work? How much of an influence did it play in your article? The whole concept of planetary boundaries was developed at Stockholm University by a guy called Johan Rockström. He's mostly working in Germany now, but there are lots of people still working on the planetary boundary concept, and it's kind of inspired our work. We actually have written quite a few papers on the planetary boundary concept previously. So the idea in their paper is that we just kind of keep up with all of the chemicals that we have in society. We're not able to quickly enough work out whether they're a problem or not. There's just too many of them. We're likely going to exceed a planetary boundary because we're just not able to assess the chemicals quickly enough. That was one of their main points in their paper. So basically, okay. the planetary boundary is like defines a safe operating space for humanity. From what I understand, you're saying because PFAS are everywhere, because they're persistent, they're forever. Is it those two reasons alone that mean a planetary boundary has been breached? Is that all the evidence that needed? No, I think you also have to show that there's 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 concern regarding an effect. So so the we we didn't think it was necessary to show that there was a large scale effect on all humans. But we just said, look, you know, if these advisories, these precautionary advisories, are not able to be achieved because of the global spread of PFAS, then we've made the planet fairly inhospitable for ourselves. We're no longer in the safe operating space. If that was the point that we were making. So we are concerned there is a potentially a, an effect as a result of this global spread that we can't do anything about. It's not like we can turn off the tap and they'll just disappear. They will stay there and we just have to wait. That's not great either because ideally you would just be able to reverse the problem quickly, but you can't with these chemicals. There's an estimated 350,000 chemicals or mixtures of chemicals on the global market. And that's a pretty good estimate, probably, of how many are used. The problem is with the, with the 350,000 is that we can't quantify all the effects of all of those. When you talk about novel entities, which is a term I'll get you to explain in a minute, the chemical industry is the second largest manufacturing industry globally. Global production increased 50-fold since 1950 and is projected to triple again by 2050 compared to 2010. That's a lot of chemicals that are predicted to be produced. Yes, even within the PFAS, there are projections for increasing volumes of those substances as well. Novel entities, could you please just give us an idea what a novel entity is? That was introduced as a replacement because the reason it was called the planetary boundary for chemical pollution, which I actually prefer in a lot of respects because it's easier to understand regarding chemicals. But of course, they wanted to include things that are not just chemicals, they include plastics in there, um, nanoparticles, complex mixtures. They include not just 
chemicals now, they include other materials, things that are man-made and that shouldn't be in the environment. Could you please explain why has a new planetary boundary for PFAS been exceeded? The reason we think it's been exceeded is because for the four PFAS that we have studied in our paper, they're globally spread and they are spread at concentrations now everywhere around the environment due to our increasing knowledge of toxicity over the last 20 years. But these levels in the environment are now above some of these guideline values. So that makes us concerned that there could be human health effects, even at the, you know, these fairly low globally spread levels. We make the case that therefore this planetary boundary for chemical pollution has actually been exceeded. But we say maybe the chemical pollution planetary boundary or the novel entity planetary boundary actually is a placeholder for a whole set of planetary boundaries for chemicals and that we have identified one for PFAS now and there can be other ones. Some of the other planetary boundaries can be thought of as chemical pollution boundaries. For example, Mm. the one for the ozone hole, ozone layer depletion, that can be thought of as a chemical pollution or a novel entity planetary boundary because its chemicals are causing that, right? So man-made chemicals. It's just a different effect. It's not a toxic effect. So you could think that, you know, we're going to discover effects related to chemical pollution, which will lead to different planetary boundaries being exceeded in the future. I think the hard thing for me to get my head around with planetary boundaries, how are they measured? There's no real definition of what a safe operating space is. A planetary boundary basically defines a safe operating space for humanity. Novel entities was one of the nine planetary boundaries. And uh, so if that would be exceeded, then you would say based on for example, chemical pollution or the use of PFAS, we're no longer in that safe operating space anymore. Um, there can be, you know, we'd be in danger of being having some effects uh, on humans, which could, um, you know, make the it makes the planet, you know, basically inhospitable for for humans because of the of the use of chemicals. Well, that's um, that's very concerning. Inhospitable for humans. How do we? Is there any hope in this? In in this, Ian? Well, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, that's one of the primary reasons we wrote the paper was that we should learn a lesson from this. And uh, we've been saying in other papers about the problems with persistent chemicals and that they can lead to these kind of global problems. And so we hope that. Uh, by getting this information out and showing that the problem that has occurred for these just these four PFAS, um, you know, we have to stop it occurring for the wider group of PFAS, but not maybe just PFAS, but for, um, you know, what even more widely for the chemical pollution problem, to just be more careful about the way we design chemicals. Um, we're going to have to use chemistry in a modern society, um, but we can design. Uh, better chemistries, we can design safer chemistries, we can have, you know, this whole concept of green chemistry is something which has grown a lot in the last few, in the last uh, couple of decades. And uh, this is the idea that you could design a chemistry, which uh, it doesn't cause um, environmental problems. So you can introduce things, for example, like design for degradation, so that a, a chemical when it enters the environment will degrade into safe end products. So those are the kind of things that we have to think about when we we design uh, consumer products or or pro- industrial processes that we we think very carefully about the chemicals we use in those 
consumer products and processes and make sure that they we have this green chemistry thinking incorporated so that as we go into the future we don't cause similar problems and that we have you know more sustainable um society yes and you cover this in your frequently asked questions document that you're going to be making public you cover this in a section just near the end that says what lessons can be learned and um you say there a very important line at the end as pointed out in the paper persistence is generally seen as a less immediate hazardous property than toxicity but it's actually the key factor that lets pollution problems spiral out of control. Continuously release a persistent chemical, the levels in the environment will increase until you reach some kind of effects threshold. And now it could be an effect you know about, but it's quite often an effect you don't know about and that you discover later. And that's basically what occurred with these four PFAS. We didn't know about these immune effect 20 years ago, but now we do. And the result of that is we've dropped the safe levels enormously. And that's going to occur again and again when we use highly persistent chemicals. We have to be more proportionate and only use them where they're essential. Absolutely. Will PFAS ever return to safe levels? That's in your FAQs. If we stop using PFAS, yeah. In the case of these four PFAS, they will decline, but they're not going to degrade in the environment. They're going to gradually dilute into the deeper oceans, which is a large volume. That's the only long-term solution. It's not ideal, of course, because they're not entirely going away, but the concentrations Mm -hmm. will decline and uh, hopefully we can learn a lesson and not introduce more of these substances in the future. How does this play out? Or how do you think your paper can influence or, or is likely to influence the regulators, the ones that make the decisions about these chemicals and clean up? I don't know. I think that they normally would just set guideline values like they have. I don't think my work is going to influence that. I hope that it could help people who are working on things like the restriction proposal. So ideas about how we regulate chemicals going forward, the more precautionary approaches to regulation going forward. In the in the European Union, we already have these kind of precautionary hazard-based approaches to regulate chemicals based on persistence and based on bicumulation potential um, and mobility, as well as a new concept in the European Union, the idea that chemicals can travel around the world very easily. I'm hoping that it will help that particular area as we move forward, that we can maybe restrict certain very problematic kind of chemistries and not use them unless they're absolutely essential. So I'm hoping that they'll have some influence there in the future. What do you hope the general public take away from this paper? The general public, I don't want to scare the public. And we've had this, we've been exposed for the last 20, 30 years, and even at higher levels to keep us in the past. So it's not like this is something new. You're not being exposed to higher levels all of a sudden. It's just that we have a better knowledge of the toxicity mm. of these chemicals. So now we know that there could be a problem with the exposure we're having now and also in the past, but we don't know that there's an effect. But I, I think what I want the public to do is just to raise their awareness about the problematic chemistries that we are using in society and to put pressure on where they can. It's not really their responsibility. But if they can make an influence by voting or by joining NGOs, then they can maybe have an influence on politicians and maybe change policies regarding how chemicals are used in society.
thank you very much for talking with me today, Ian, and about your paper and also clarifying some of the misinterpretations around the paper. And it was very helpful to have you explain things in greater detail for the listeners. And is there anything that we've missed that you think is important from your paper? I don't think so. I think we've covered all the main issues. Well, thank you. Thank you again for talking with me today on Talking PFAS. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. The next episode of Talking PFAS will be published in October. I'll be heading to the Cleanup Conference in Adelaide and I will hopefully be bringing you many discussions that I have had with experts in Australia and around the world regarding PFAS. You might note that I have a new podcast host. So if you have previously shared the Talking PFAS Wooshka link, eventually it will stop working. I am now with Omni. That is the link I would love you to share. Thank you. Please share the episode. But all information in today's episode is copyright. Contact me for republishing permissions. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.